I'm Timothy, and today we'll be talking to cold case detective and best-selling author of Cold Case Christianity, J. Warner Wallace. Our focus will be the evidence for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. I'm Garrick, and in the second half of this week's episode, we'll be looking at Pink Floyd's classic album, The Wall, and we'll see why the cross of Christ is what every human being needs most. Well, if you're interested in learning more about how to engage the culture with gospel-centered apologetics, take a look at the book Stand Firm, Apologetics and the Brilliance of the Gospel by Paul Gould, published by our friends at B&H Academic. Learn more about Stand Firm and other excellent books by visiting the site bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Today we're going to be talking to a homicide detective who specializes in cold case murders. His name is J. Warner Wallace, and he's the author of many books, including Cold Case Christianity and Forensic Faith. He's also the co-author of So the Next Generation Will Know with Sean McDowell, who will be on our podcast later in this season. J. Warner Wallace has earned master's degrees from Gateway Seminary and University of California in Los Angeles, in addition to graduating from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Academy. Jim, it is an honor to have you with us today on Three Chords and the Truth. Glad to be with you. I'm just looking forward to this. Well, every episode of Three Chords and the Truth includes a lot of apologetics and a lot of rock and roll as well. And so with that in mind, I have a question for you that does not have to do with apologetics. And that is, if you could be a member of any rock band in the history of rock and roll, what band would it be and what would you be doing in that particular band? Okay, first of all, if I give you this answer, are you going to judge my... Timothy, I just know you're going to judge my taste in, in rock music, okay? Also, I'm going to date myself too, right? <laughs> Thus far this season, we've had one person respond Kenny G and another person respond Depeche Mode. So I don't think whatever you say is going to be something you'll be judged by. <laughs> all right, okay, good, good. So I didn't become a Christian until I was about 35. And growing up, you know, I always thought I would eventually play in some rock band. I think every kid thinks that, right? So... So a lot of my early life was spent playing guitar, and I transferred over to bass. I transitioned because I was at a church when I finally got saved that didn't need another guitar player. So I transitioned to bass so I could have something to do. But as a kid growing up, I'll just tell you that I was really interested in the kind of melodic rock lead guitarists like Neil Sean from Journey. And I think Journey is probably the band that we saw live more than any other band, my wife and I, when we were growing up. We were pretty much every Journey concert we could get to. And I, I just loved Neil's one of those guys. You know, he started off with Carlos Santana, and Santana is like this, of course, a psychotic minor scale kind of lead guitarist who is just so much fun to listen to. And of course, every song is going to be Carlos wailing on the guitar. So when Neil got his chance, he would get like a couple of measures. You know, basically, he learned to have like this spider fingers because he was all over the fretboard because he only had such a short period of time, but he kind of refined his chops. And by the time he gets into Journey, I mean, he to me was one of the classic melodic lead guitarist, and I just so admired this guy. So if I was going to play in any band, it'd be that band. But what would I do? I mean, you already had the best guitarist you could find. And the best vocalist. You had the best vocalist as well. Steve Perry is absolutely, we've done entire episodes about Steve Perry on this because he is the most amazing vocalist, that clean, clear vocal. And it really does go, I mean, that was a band coming together with the guitar and the vocals all together in that, and then add Jonathan yeah. Cain's keyboard playing. I it know. was really an incredible band that they, yes, they were sappy at times. Yes, they took themselves seriously, but wow, they really sounded good as well. Lights, 
story about how you became personally convinced of the truthfulness of the New Testament Gospels. I think our listeners need to hear that. I was thinking about this this morning because I post material on a number of websites, you know, and on Facebook pages and stuff with friends who have run different apologetics pages. And sometimes when I post them on the apologetics, like Christians who like apologetics, I think they have a hard time believing that someone could come to faith by way of the Christian evidences, that somebody could at least be persuaded to pay attention to what the gospel has to say about salvation, which I would never have been persuaded to listen to that until I felt like the story was reliable in other ways. And that was my story. I was not raised in a Christian family in, in Southern California. That's not too hard. We're such a large metropolitan area. And unlike other cities in America, you know, we're not a vertical city. We were we were designed and planned and built post-vehicle, post-car. So all those cities that are created before the invention of the car, they're vertical and they've got rapid transit because that's the only way you can get around. So New York, and it's kind of like San Francisco, has BART. That's the only East Coast pre-car city in California. So we are this huge, sprawling metropolitan area that's very horizontal. And that means that there are pockets you could live in and never really – I just didn't meet any Christians growing up, never had any interaction with Christians, except when I got to work as a cop. I would bump into Christians at work, a few who were officers. Most of the Christians I met at work were suspects. hate to say it, but they were. So I was not persuaded that any of this was worth my time. But my wife had a different experience growing up. She was raised by a very devout Christ follower, her mom, who also was raised as a Catholic. My wife's version of that was very much a cultural Catholic upbringing. So she had no idea, you know, never read the Bible, had no idea what the Bible teaches. But she had been in the Mass growing up. And so when our kids were finally born, we were together about 18 years at the time. She said, should we bring our kids to church? And I was more than happy to go to with her to any mass she wants to go to. I don't care. I mean, I'm not, I have to believe it. My dad would be happy to go with you to church, and he's not a believer. So I was happy to go just to please my wife. But we didn't go to a Catholic church. We ended up going to a Baptist-affiliated megachurch here in Southern California. And the pastor just threw out Jesus as a guy who was super smart, had a lot of important things to say. Really, that's as much as I can remember from that first visit. But that was enough to provoke me to buy a Bible. And then as I read through the Bible, I realized these four accounts are written by people who want us to believe that stuff actually happened, who are even making claims like John does in his gospel that he saw this and there was a lot more he could talk about, but there's not enough pages to write all that stuff. And I thought, hmm, boy, I could test these. Because cold cases in homicides are simply unsolved murders. There's no cold case burglaries or cold case robberies. Those have a statute of limitations. Homicides stay open so we can work them 50 years later. And you often get accounts from several decades earlier where you don't have access to the writers anymore and you don't have access to the people they were writing about. And But you've got to figure out what happened. It was kind of the same thing here. So I just applied that skill set, and I got to a place where I told my wife after about six months that I really felt comfortable that these Gospels were telling me something true about Jesus. And that was the first time that I started to pay attention to what the New Testament said about me. So I was just one of those guys that had constructed the walls and barriers that apologetics are the evidences for Christianity, have the ability to knock those walls down. And you'd have had to knock them down for me before I could hear the gospel. And so that's the role that apologetics played for me. Well, you describe a lot of that in your book, Cold Case Christianity, which every one of our listeners should pick that book up, make sure you read it. But also in Cold Case Christianity, you talk about 10 principles of cold case homicide cases, and then you apply those claims to the Gospels. And so if you were to meet somebody on the street, as I'm sure you have many times in your speaking, as well as just your personal engagement, somebody who says, I just don't think the Gospels are historically reliable. I can't trust the Bible. I can't trust the Gospels in particular. I think they're just made up. Which one of these principles would you start with in talking to that person to try to help them to see just the fundamental truthfulness, the reliability, the historical nature of the New Testament Gospels? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think you have to ask good questions, right? So, so when someone says they think it's unreliable— well, what do you mean when you historically unreliable? And then why do you think it's historically? And I think a lot of times people will say that kind of thing, though, really, because what's hidden, and for me, too, this is the case, is that you, I just cannot accept as historically reliable anything that involves a miracle account. I'm sorry. I mean, look, there may be some historical truth in there. 
But Peter Pan's a story about 18th, 19th century England. I suppose there's some historical truths that are woven into that fictional account, but I don't believe in Peter Pan, even if there are pieces of the story that I could lock into history. I could probably find archaeological support for some of the claims of Peter Pan. It doesn't mean that I'm going to believe in Peter Pan. That was my problem. So I think the first principle I would simply say is that, and it's the first chapter of my book, is I get it. I also have my hesitancy about supernatural claims. Even now, as a Christ follower, as a Christian, I'm not going to bite off on every claim that someone makes about a miracle that occurred last week. I'm not going to do that. I hold that inherent skepticism. But the whole examination here is to see if someone supernatural or something supernatural could have existed. So you can't start by just rejecting anything supernatural. You can't. And I think actually I can offer good reason why you shouldn't. Because if you're like me, you're somebody who believes, I believed as an atheist, that the science was accurate and that it demonstrates we're in a universe that came into existence from nothing. That's the standard cosmological model is still Big Bang cosmology. This idea that all space, time, and matter came into existence from nothing. Not from another void, because that spatial void is something. According to the science, there was no space before there was space. That's hard to get your head around. I get it. But that means we're looking for a first cause that is non-spatial, non-temporal, non-material. You're already outside of naturalism to explain how the universe comes into existence. And all of us just go, oh, well, yeah, I guess, but I don't know how to understand it. That's okay. But think what you're saying. You're saying that you believe there's already some causal force that is sufficient and sufficiently powerful that's outside of space, time, and matter, that accounts for all space, time. What if that thing happens to be God? What if that thing happens to be personal? If that was the case, then every other supernatural element of the Gospels is small potatoes compared to Genesis 1, everything from nothing. So I really think I would just say, be fair before we start. Like I don't walk into a crime scene and say, oh, I'm sure it's the husband. Even though, you know, lots of times it is the husband, okay, or it is a boyfriend, or it is a spouse, or a girlfriend, whatever. People who are closest to you are usually the ones I'm going to look at first when it comes to a murder. But I'm not going to assume that up front, because if that's the case, I'm going to miss something. So I would just say, suspend whatever your presuppositions are. Don't be a know-it-all. And then we can begin an investigation together. Well, as a cold case detective, one of the things that's part of your job is to see evidence that other people have missed. And so what is one piece of evidence that as you look at the Gospels, you think maybe people overlook? There's a piece of evidence there that most people just overlook that you think is really important for the historicity of the Gospels. What are maybe one or two of those pieces of evidence that get overlooked in the Gospels? Okay, so what I love about the work I get to do is to set this related to forensic statement analysis, and and that's just trying to hear the things that people aren't saying or trying to find the things that people are writing that are kind of hidden between the lines. And it really comes down to the kinds of choices that people make in the statements they make or in the way they record the statements of others or the way they just – we have choices, and our choices give away – what we believe about things. And in terms of language, your choices are usually the optional descriptive language. So you never need to use an adjective or an adverb. When you use an adjective or an adverb, that's an option that you could have easily said nothing in that category. You could have said, instead of saying it was a red car, you could have said it was a car. Oh, it was a shiny red car. Well, you could have said it was a car. Now you're saying it's a shiny red car. Why are you adding those pieces of information? You'll see this in the scriptures a lot in the way that someone offers a name, for example, Simon Peter. Why? Well, because if there's a lot of Simons or a lot of Peters, then you may want to add the additional name as a way of isolating. And so that kind of stuff for me popped out immediately. I'm looking for those things. If you just went through your Bible and you just circled all of the adjectives and adverbs that are in the Greek, I think you're going to find a lot of stuff is going to pop out that you just didn't see before. I'll give another example of this. People compress time and expand time when they're describing a historical event or just an eyewitness account from last two hours ago at a, at a murder scene. And you might talk about how you drove from here to there and it took you an hour and a half to get there, but you compress it into one sentence. You leave out a lot of the detail. Or you might take something that just took 10 seconds to occur and spend a whole paragraph telling me about it. So I'm going to look and say and look for where do people compress time? Sometimes you compress time to hide something. 
But sometimes you expand your description to hide something, like you're trying to account for where it is you were. And I'm, I look at that in suspect statements. I look at it and say, hey, why is he spending a paragraph telling me about this thing that took 10 seconds? He's like trying to justify his existence in these 10 seconds when he's doing something else, really. So I'm looking for those kinds of things in the Gospels. And those things popped out to me. You've also written a book along similar lines called Forensic Faith. And one of the main points that you make in Forensic Faith is that the church has a rich history of presenting evidence for the claims of Christianity. The history of Christianity, it's a, it's a history of making strong cases for the Christian faith based on real evidence. And so if that's the case, which it certainly is, why has it become so difficult in so many cases for Christians to be case makers for their faith, for them to be able to present the evidence? Why has that fallen to the wayside in many cases if we have such a strong history in Christianity of making good cases for Christianity? Well, there's a couple of things that are in play here. I think that, number one, it is harder, right? It's harder to know how to make a case for something than to just say, well, I just know it in my bones. I just know it because God has done something in my life that wouldn't have happened otherwise. I mean, we've taken that word testimony and we've distorted it to mean, I want to tell you what God has done for me personally. That is not the way the word testimony is used in the book of Acts. The only people who were using this word were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, number one, or they had seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus us like Paul. So when they talk about testimony, they're talking about eyewitness testimony. That's something we call direct evidence in criminal trials. So that is an evidential approach. Now, I, I will say that the part of the problem is, is that it's much easier for me to tell you what my life's been like after I became a Christian than it is to give you the evidences for the resurrection. That requires more work. So I think in some sense, we always have a tendency as humans to default to what's easiest. And so we often do that as believers. We also see us teach, we teach this. I mean, if you're going to teach a system of sharing the gospel with people, how many times have you been told to share your personal testimony? Look, the problem is, is that my Mormon family, I've got, my dad's not a believer, but he married a woman years ago who had six kids with him and they all are Mormons because they were raised that way. And if you ask a Mormon they're going to default to their personal testimony at some point. I mean, even especially if you start pushing them on the evidences, they're always going to default to personal testimony. So look, I don't think we should avoid our personal testimonies, but we ought to be able to support those. Otherwise, how would anyone know if our testimony, our personal testimony of transformation is any better or more valid than the Mormon who lives next door, who, by the way, is probably behaving a lot better than we are anyway. So if I had to guess, I'm thinking the Mormons probably got it right, right? So I think it's important for us to shift our thinking. But here's another, you know this as an apologist, you know that a lot of the times we have a theological barrier that keeps us from wanting to share the evidences because so many of this is where I take a beating online in these groups on Facebook because there's a lot of presuppositionalists who believe that this approach really trusts that, number one, that we have the faculties to be able to assess evidence, that we aren't so fallen and I find myself doing both things. I mean, I'm going to paint from both palettes, right? So both those paints are on my palette, and I sometimes will become very presuppositional. What I'm really talking about is, does your worldview, is it grounded in such a way that it even allows you to presuppose certain things or not? I will definitely go there if I need to. But a lot of times I'm in the evidences because it strikes me that that is the example I see in Scripture over and over and over again. Well, you and your wife, Susie, have produced also a book called Cold Case Christianity for Kids, which is, by the way, part of our family discipleship curriculum that we've used with our two younger children. And that may cause some people to ask, why on earth does a kid need to learn about apologetics? Why would you have an apologetics book for a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid? Why should they be learning apologetics? What would you say to that? Well, I think that, and I was not a Christian at this age, but if you look maybe a generation ago, you would have said that probably about 85, it used to be an 85 at 18 principle. 85% of Christians became Christians by the age of 18. Only 15% became Christians after the age of 18. Well, why? Because there's some age of skepticism that enters into to a culture. And maybe back then, that was probably when you went to college, right? So at 18, 19, you're now in the workforce or you're in college, you're engaged with people who aren't your immediate family, and suddenly you are no longer under the 
the tutelage of mom and dad, and now you're having some skeptical ideas. And so I can see that now that's dropped. And there's good evidence that I post on a, one of our blogs is, is simply on our website at coldcasechristianity.com. Just type in, in the search bar up there the word updated, and you'll see that I have updated all the surveys since 1999. So I've been doing this for years of young people departing when they have skepticism, when do they depart, when do they no longer identify as Christians. That group is, I'm not alarmed about it because these are not people who are becoming atheists. For the most part, they're just rejecting their prior Christian identity, but they aren't necessarily rejecting the existence of God even. A lot of them would say there is a higher power, but the point is they are no longer claiming that they are Christians. That age has been dropping. So that old 85 by 18 is now more like 85% by 12. And if you ask people who no longer claim to be Christians, they're out of high school, they're in college, and they'll tell you, yeah, I'm no longer a Christian. Well, when did you start having skepticism? It's between the ages of 10 and 17. They will tell you this, between the ages of 10. So in other words, you think you're ushering your kids to college and their faith is intact, when in fact, they probably haven't been Christians for a number of years, just haven't been telling you. So I knew when we started talking about apologetics, the old strategy, oh, we'll start teaching Christian evidences when you're a high school junior or senior, is way too late. And why? Because the first point of skeptical contact is no longer a student or a professor in college. It's the glowing rectangle at the end of your arm. It's the iPhone. It's your digital media. You are encountering the world of skepticism, and most kids either have a cell phone or have friends who have cell phones by the time they're in junior high school. So that means seventh grade, that's probably the new barrier we have to prepare for. That's probably the new threshold that we as parents need to prepare our kids for. So when we wrote these books, eight to 12, seems like it's right in the perfect zone because by the time you're 13, you're gonna hear all the Jesus mythers, you're gonna be exposed to pornography, sex, all the stuff that are barriers to Christian living and Christian claims, that you're going to get exposed to those, whether we like it as parents or not, even if we say, oh, you're not allowed to have a phone. Well, you can't isolate. Right now, we're isolating in homes, but you cannot isolate in homes your kids all the way through their junior high years. So I think it's going to be important for us to inoculate our kids. In other words, I want our kids, my kids, to hear every objection to Christianity from me first before they hear it from a friend before they hear it from a classmate or somebody, maybe a teacher. I want them to hear it so they've already overcome that objection. They've already knocked it down. I'll tell you this. I do a lot of churches where at the end of the service, I'm at a book table and somebody will walk up and say, can I buy a, a book for my non-believing high schooler, or my non-believing college student? I mean, I'll sell them a book if they want to buy one, but I tell them they're not going to read this book. They had a question that was very conversational years ago. And we, as the parents of our kids, need to be the best apologists. But I always say, if my kids want to have a season where they're doing stupid because they're driven by their libido or whatever they're going to be driven by, that's on them. I get that. I was not a Christian myself until I was 35. So that's on them. But if they're no longer Christians because they don't think it's factually true, that's on me. So I think we have to separate those two things. We do our best. But let's face it, we are all fallen humans, and there will be a season for some of us of exploring our fallenness. And you and I, as dad, we can only do so much. But at least we want to start early, and that's why the books are written for 8 to 12s. To learn more about J. Warner Wallace's work, go to coldcasechristianity.com. And if you're interested in apologetics resources for your kids, take a look at casemakersacademy.com. Thank you so much again for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth. Thanks, brother. I appreciate you being here. So it was great. Now is the time for Toy Box Hero. The Toy Box Hero Tournament is that time in the program when Garrick and I take toys from our children and put them into mortal combat with one another as we seek to determine who is going to become the winner of each week's Toy Box Hero Tournament. And before we begin this week, yeah. Derek has a yep. grievance, and I, I have, have a confession. So we yeah. have grievances and confessions to deal with first before we move forward into Toy Box Hero Tournament. Yeah, friends, something that heroes don't do, heroes don't cheat. Heroes don't come back after a podcast episode has been concluded and edit and enter 
in new content, record additional segments over a previously recorded segment and declare themselves the winner of Toy Box Hero, something that did not happen in the original recording of the very first ever Toy Box Hero, something I did not discover until re-listening to the episode yesterday in which this shock and the horror of this different voice came on over my headphones and in which I just suddenly disappeared from the competition that I remember taking part of. Well, you said that the heroes don't do that. The truth is they actually do because that's the whole premise of Endgame is they went back and fixed what had been done before. But uh, so they, they did at that point. Now, the truth is, the confession is at this point that recording went a lot weird at that point and some things weren't working and I just went ahead and went back and redid it. And yes, I chose winning on that. I confess that <laughs> I did that. I went back and changed it at that point because I was trying to piece it together from too many different elements and actually just got frustrated, gave up and re-recorded it. And so there's your confession, yeah. folks. There's the confession right so there. So history is written by the winners, apparently, when it comes to podcasting. <laughs> or at least the people that go back in time the editors. and change that. That's right. So anyway, That's that is right. the truth. That's the grievance. That's the confession. Now you all know the things that happen behind the scenes at Three Chords and the truth. But now is the time for the Toy Box Hero Tournament for this week, in which I am going to bring forth my third child's toy. She actually went and chose it herself. She's 13, went and chose this one herself and brought it to me as her competitor in the Toy Box Tournament. And it it is da, 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 da. it is <laughs> Captain Marvel. This is her yes. Captain Marvel with yeah, these what is she? awesome oh. removable wrist hand. Yeah, what were fiery those? Things. Well, yeah. <laughs> these blast energy out, and so That's they right. blast energy out That's from right. her. She's quite impressive. Her head of hair is very different than what I recall from the movie, but most of the rest is is pretty much the same yeah. as the movie. So this is a very difficult competition because also I am taking toys from my third child, but it's my third and final child who is, though a prodigy for her age, is still only 16 months old, and so the toys that I have to choose from, friends, are of quite a different nature. So, I did my own cheating and I actually picked three toys, but it's going to make sense here in a second. I picked these three toys because these were three of her very first favorite toys because this was her very first favorite animal. And what I am holding up before Timothy now is what I like to call the Trinity of Turtles. That's right. We have two stuffed animals. Both of them are sea turtles of different sorts, and then a, a third, more hard plastic turtle that she got from one of her older siblings, which is a just a normal, everyday tortoise of some sort. But these three turtles, what they lack in size and ferocity, they make up for in cuteness. And if you don't think that the turtles are cute, if you heard my daughter say turtle then you'd be convinced that perhaps nothing nothing in the world could defeat these turtles when they are attached to my daughter. So there we go. Three turtles. I'll grant that last one. No matter what it is, and we won't edit this out later, <laughs> is that the cuteness factor is definitely in Emmy's favor. Look at those um, eyes. Look at those eyes, Timothy. Indisputably, yes. But look at these fists. Yeah, look at I know. These fists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. In, in reality, there's no way that even the tortoise, even the Galapagos Islands tortoise could possibly stand against Captain Marvel. So Captain Marvel won the ferocity contest, but uh, Emmy's Toys won the cuteness contest yeah. in this particular week. Although, could I make an argument that because sea turtles are endangered, that, that <laughs> Captain Marvel wouldn't possibly touch them so that actually the turtle would come out and survive the fight? Uh, you know, at, at least a truce. Yeah, Captain Marvel's environmental sensitivity <laughs> could, <laughs> could That's right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. If you've already subscribed to Three Chords and the Truth, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe today and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in links and show notes for this episode, you can find those at our website, threechordsapologetics.com. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. 
Well, the way Garrick and I see it, one of the greatest evidences of God's common grace is rock and roll. And so now is that moment in the program when we take a look at one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll from a theological point of view. Well, I'm Timothy, and the first major conflict I had with my wife was during our honeymoon when we disagreed over whether we should get 70% lean or 90% lean beef at the grocery store. I'm Garrick, and my first big fight with my wife was on the proper way to make cinnamon toast. And now we all agree that I was right. (laughs) Well, even though we've all experienced separations in our relationships for all sorts of silly reasons, we have also, every single one of us, we feel at times alienation and brokenness and separation for far deeper reasons than cinnamon toast or the amount of fat in a piece of hamburger. And the reason we feel this sense of alienation, the reason we feel this deep sense of brokenness, the reason we have conflicts in our relationships is because that's part of what sin brought about in the world in the beginning because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And so the authors of the New Testament, they clearly understood the sense of separation, of alienation from one another and from God. I think that's part of what Paul's getting at in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21, when he points out that outside of Jesus Christ, every single one of us has been alienated or made strangers, not only from God, but also, I think, from one another. And sometimes what separates us is, in fact, sin. But there's also the fact that we live in a fallen world in which creation itself is twisted and it's broken. And sometimes what alienates us, what separates us, what brings about that sense of brokenness of relationships in us is things from our past that we don't even remember, chemical imbalances, things outside our control that bring about brokenness in our relationships. And sometimes it's even social or cultural divisions. That's part of what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says there was a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. He uses this imagery of a wall separating the Jews and Gentiles, which there actually was such a wall in the precincts of the Jewish temple. But this imagery of a wall is such a powerful expression of the human condition because we all feel it. We all, at some point in our lives, we feel this separation, this alienation, this broken relationship. We all feel that. That's part of what Andrew Peterson, which is a a Christian artist I listen to, which is on a list of about three different Christian artists that I listen to because I don't listen to Christian music. But Andrew Peterson has a song called Day by Day, and he says, you have never met a single soul who didn't feel the curses toll, who didn't wish that death would die, and maybe that's the reason why it hurts so bad. And what he's trying to get at there, there is no human being who doesn't feel this brokenness, this toll of the curse, this sense of alienation. And this wall is such a powerful image of that sense, that feeling that every one of us have. We see this idea so clearly in the album, in the song that we're looking at this week, The Wall by Pink Floyd. Oh, This album was not the first album that I was introduced to by Pink Floyd. I actually didn't come to know about Pink Floyd until probably the mid-90s. And my, my brother worked for Sony Music at the time. And so my first introduction really to Pink Floyd was their Division Bell album and tour I just thought that it was also a really neat cover. And then I would later come to see that Pink Floyd had a number of interesting covers, many which were far less appropriate than the Division Bell. And of course, in my high school years, my later high school years, after this real dark period in life, I went ahead and checked out the rumor of Dark Side of Oz in late high school. So once I was kind of past this point in life, I did watch Dark Side of Oz, but I did so without the influence of of drugs, which still makes it still a very creepy experience that's really hard to explain. Hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. The time is gone, the song is over, thought I'd say. 
Well, so Pink Floyd began in the mid-1960s, but they didn't begin as Pink Floyd, right? In 1964, Roger Waters was the bass player and Sid Barrett, the guitar player. And they were in a band known as The (laughs) T-Set. Which, that's a terrible name for a band, Um, and it's going to get worse as we talk about it more in a moment. But I uh, mean... I don't Why even do you know what to, Oh, I don't even know what to do with that. They were formerly called the Megadeths, which I think is interesting. That's a much better name and Way one that better. has done well for another band. But interestingly, <laughs> interestingly, they didn't go with the rock umlauts. Instead, they doubled the G. It's like uh, that's a new move. I hadn't seen that one before. Yeah, double the letters. Well, I guess you've got rat, double the T at that's the end true. of rat. You've got a few that have done that. But in 1965, they were one of several bands in a lineup that was beginning to play a set of concerts throughout the day. And another band in that set was called T-Set as well. There were not just one, but two (laughs) T-Sets. That's that's so British. (laughs) It is so British. (laughs) And so Sid Barrett, he decided that they were going to rename the band because they didn't want to be the second T-Set. And so he, much like Brian Jones, when they named the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones, he looked at his blues records and he found two different blues records, one by Pink Anderson and one by Floyd Council. This is a type of blues, both of them called Piedmont blues, but Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. And so he just chooses Pink and Floyd and names the band Pink Floyd, which then began growing quickly in popularity in the mid-1960s. Well, in 1967, they had landed a recording contract. They released the highly successful album entitled The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. This is one of the great psychedelic rock albums of all time. It's definitely worth going back and taking a listen. It's a Pink Floyd that most people just don't know. By 1967, something began to happen to Sid Barrett, and he had been experimenting with LSD, which certainly didn't help, but it seems like that he had begun to suffer from schizophrenia by this point, and he had once been this really dynamic performer on stage, very outgoing, very easygoing, just a joy to be around, apparently, and he began to just behave strangely in ways that people didn't understand, and of course then, I mean, now we still don't understand schizophrenia completely, but certainly then there was very little understanding of schizophrenia. And there were times he would just tune down his guitar and not actually play during a set where he would wander around the stage, not play at all. And it just became a painful thing for the fellow band members as Sid Barrett, who had been this one that really drew the band together, was the creative genius in the band. And suddenly he just becomes this other person. And it got to the point that a guitarist and a friend of Sid Barrett's named David Gilmore was asked to join the band to play guitar in the band. And at first they were going to have both of them in the band at the same time. And eventually it came to the point that in April of 1968, Sid Barrett was dismissed from Pink Floyd, the band that he had really helped to found and bring together, give its initial sound. And the shadow of this painful experience of Sid Barrett's schizophrenia, it really shapes all the rest of Pink Floyd and especially Roger Waters, really the most brilliant moments that Pink Floyd has from this moment forward are all in some sense influenced by the shadow of this painful experience with Sid Barrett during 1967 and 1968. Yeah. After Sid Barrett was dismissed, Roger Waters began to emerge as the creative force behind the band. So five years later, 1973, Pink Floyd produced one of the greatest albums in rock history, one of their most well-known albums, and that would be The Dark Side of the Moon. And two years after that, they had the song Shine On, You Crazy Diamond, which was on their album, would become on their album, Wish You Were Here. And that album, Wish You Were Here, was really about 
Sid Barrett about wishing he was there. And the song, the particular song, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, was really dedicated to him. And as it would turn out, Sid, he actually showed up in the studio while they were recording this very song and nobody recognized him. He had completely shaved off his hair and his beard, even shaved off his eyebrows. And when Roger Waters actually realized this was their friend, this was the one who had started the band with them, Sid Barrett, he actually just broke down and wept in the studio. And that was right in the middle of recording the song Shine On You Crazy Diamond on Wish You Were Here, which was about Sid Barrett. Well, four years later, and one year after my birth in 1979, the shadow of Barrett's struggle with mental illness showed up again in another one of their masterpiece albums, and the one that we're dealing with here today, and that album is The Wall. And The Wall, this concept for The Wall really began in 1977, when in the middle of a concert, some of the concert goers, they set off a bunch of fireworks right in the middle of the concert. And Roger Waters lost his temper, and he spat in the face of one of his fans that had set off these fireworks. And so, this idea of a wall of separation of what's going on in the audience and what's going on in the stage, it begins with this. And so, he has this idea of this sense of separation between the the audience and the performer that is there in a concert, but it really grows into something much more. It really becomes a metaphor for how people in authority and the twisted experiences in our lives, how they break us, how they crush our capacity to connect with one another, and how every human being, we've all built walls because we have a story that's filled with brokenness. And each of these experiences, in some sense, in our lives is another brick in the wall. And And in one sense, we might say all of us draw our resources for relationships from the poisoned well of our own past. And the wall becomes this metaphor for that brokenness that we feel. And this album, The Wall, it just powerfully captures that sense of brokenness and alienation and separation that separates us from one another as human beings. Yeah, and it wasn't simply an album. Again, it was, first of all, a concept album, again, a narrative, a story, but it was also a movie, a movie that we won't talk about because it's so strange and just out there. But because of this, because this narrative, it's a story they're trying to tell, their concerts weren't simply a performance, right? Or a set list. They were this experience, the experience that they wanted their audiences to share in and hear and understand the story that they were trying to tell through this album. And it really is. It's the story of Pink, somebody named Pink, who they've arbitrarily named Pink for some reason. Ed, Pink is a a rock star, and he descends into madness and isolation. And there's so many kind of connections between their experience with Sid Barrett and this character, Pink. And uh, this concert was actually only performed 31 times in four different cities. And during the concert, ended up building in every concert a 160-foot-long wall as the concert was happening, this wall took shape on the stage. They had massive inflatable puppets that would come out at different times as part of the story. They had a huge pig. They had a pig that came out during the concert. Now, they'd been doing that earlier, all the way back in their Animals album, they had done that. But they had this pig that came out during the concert that was this animatronic pig at some sort. And before we really talk about the wall, we we really do need to talk about this pig. This pig is really important. (laughs) It is, because again, it it made its appearance earlier than this, but it never went away. I mean, it, it lasted throughout the history of the band, and it takes many forms. It's not like there was only one pig, but essentially it began as this 40-foot inflatable floating pig filled with helium and largely was for entertainment at first. Again, it showed up on an album cover and then and then started being used in the shows and then being used promotionally for their shows. Pink, 
And my favorite part of the pig story happened in <laughs> yes. 1976, yeah. which was they were doing the photo shoot for the album that came out in 1977, Animals, and it was of a pig that was above a power plant. It was this filled with helium and above a power plant just outside of London. And they had hired a sharpshooter to shoot the pig if it got away because they didn't want it floating through the air. It's a massive pig. And the one day that the sniper does not show up for work is the one day that the pig gets loose and it floats up into the air. It gets as high as 30,000 feet and it forces them to cancel flights in and out of Heathrow Airport because of the fact that the planes were almost running into a pig that had gotten loose and was floating through the air. And so they send out police helicopters to chase down the pig and find out where it lands. So you've got a floating pig Mm -hmm. that gets as high as 30,000 feet, almost hit by planes coming in and out of Heathrow, being chased by police helicopters. And the pig lets loose in somewhere around just outside of London at this power plant. It actually makes it as far as Kent before it comes down. Now, Kent is about, I should have measured it out beforehand, but Kent is about halfway between London and Canterbury. I've gone on a bus from London to Canterbury. It's about halfway in between is where Kent is. So it's probably 40 miles outside of London. So the pig makes it on the lamb, so to speak, for 40 <laughs> miles. It's a well pig on done. the lamb for uh, Sounds 40 like a miles. delicious breakfast. <laughs> exactly. It's be great. <laughs> now, speaking of a great name for a band, much better than the tea set pig on the lamb. <laughs> and I and I heard it tell that the sharpshooter didn't show up that day because basically people forgot to tell him to come back. Like it was just like an oversight. Yeah, I'm not sure why it was, but I think it's great. The one day he doesn't show up, the pig runs away. And so that's the story of the pig. And and we know that this has nothing to do with theology, but it just is awesome. And You can't not include that in the story. The the pig is great. But the song we're actually going to focus on today is from The Wall, and it is the song Another Brick in the Wall. No dark sarcasm in the classroom Teacher, leave them kids alone There's this line, Daddy's gone across the ocean, leaving just a memory, a snapshot in the family album. Daddy, what else did you leave for me? All in all, it was just another brick in the wall. This actually probably alludes to Roger Waters' father. And Roger Waters' father was actually a pacifist, and he was a Quaker and a pacifist. He was deeply religious. But then he got caught up in the patriotism in the early part of World War II. He enlisted in the British military, and then he died in World War II. And so what Roger Waters is trying to express by that is that's his first brick in the wall. That's his first sense of loss and brokenness that has set up a a wall in his life that has started that is this loss of his father, this alienation he feels because his father has gone off to war and then never came back from that. And that's his first brick in the wall. Yeah. And there are several cuts on this album entitled Another Brick in the Wall. And part of what they're all about is how different life experiences damage our capacity, our ability to live, to be, to exist in relationships with with other people. And of course, in that, there's this very familiar chorus which says, we don't need no education, we don't need no thought control, no dark sarcasm in the classroom, teachers leave them kids alone. And this is primarily about Roger Waters' experiences in a school where the teachers continually tore down and degraded the students. Often this song is seen as anti-education, and it's not. It was never intended to be anti-education. In fact, Roger Waters himself said, it's a protest song against the tyranny of stupidity and oppression. I just want to encourage anyone who marches to a different drum to push back rather than to retreat behind emotional walls. He's not making it anti-education. He's making it 
anti these forces that in his mind try to make people conform and that do so in cruel and oppressive ways. It's less anti-education and more what we might call expressive individualism. And when the kids call out and cry out, all in all, you're just another brick in the wall, what they're saying is, you teachers, the way you're treating us, you're one more bit of brokenness and alienation that separates all of us. You are another brick in the wall of our lives that breaks us down and alienates us and separates us. And eventually he gets to a point where he's suicidal and there's the song, Goodbye, Cruel World. And then the song that many of us are familiar with in isolation from the rest of the story, the song, Hey You. Hey, you out there in the cold, getting lonely, getting old with your ear against the wall, waiting for someone to call. It was only fantasy. The wall was too high. No matter how he tried, he could not break free. That's a really crucial song in the story of this because these walls that begin with the death of his father, with his experiences in school, this wall just keeps growing. He keeps trying to satisfy and to find something that breaks him free through pleasure, something that breaks him free through trying to find wealth, all of these different things. But the wall is just too high. He can't get out of this wall. He's in isolation. Hey, you, out there in the cold, getting lonely, getting old. Yeah, and and we'll talk later towards the end because there's a bit of a, I don't know if an argument is the right way, or or there's multiple ways to try to figure out what happens at the end of this album. And so, in that, I even find myself asking the question, is it the experiences that are building this wall, or is it that in result of these experiences that the character that Pink himself is himself building the wall as if to protect him from further experiences that will bring more pain and, and more brokenness. Ultimately, the character realizes that he he has a yearning in his soul that can never be fulfilled. And we see that in the song Comfortably Numb. I turn to look, but it was One of the last songs on the album includes these words. It says, feel the bile rising from your guilty past. And you start to see this theme of guilt and shame begin to emerge. And in the end, toward the end of the album, there's the song Waiting for the Worms. It's just as if he's waiting for death is all that is happening at this point. And this is the point in the movie where exactly like Sid Barrett had done this individual pink, he shaves his head, he shaves his beard, he shaves his eyebrows even, he shaves completely in such a way that he distorts his own appearance and he's unrecognizable. And then in the song Stop, he says, I have to know, have I been guilty all this time? He's reached this point of utter and complete despair. And when he does, there's a trial. And all the accusers from his past, his teacher, his wife, his mother, all these different accusers from his past come, and he's sentenced to be exposed before his peers. And this judge comes out, and this judge is, we'll just say he's grotesque and distorted. We won't describe him beyond that. But this judge, who seems to be Pink's unconscious self, he declares that the wall must be torn down. And that's the point at which it's really unclear exactly what happens, whether there's a sense in which Pink pardons himself or a sense in which he is just exposed and shamed before the world. And so the only answer that he comes to at the end after this long experience of these over 20 different songs that build up to this point and this trial at the end, the answer is either he just pardons himself before the court of his own justice, or he is utterly shamed and exposed before everyone. And somehow the wall is torn down through his shame and through his exposure before everyone. It really leaves on this vague, but ultimately just unsatisfying note at the end. And I think it's because I sense a a complete lack of 
redemption of any sort in this story. And since we think about this, this just doesn't leave us with anything that is satisfying. There's no turn to any sort of authentic redemption in that. And so let's look carefully. I just want to look carefully together at what Roger Waters and Pink Floyd get wrong. But before we look at what they get wrong, let's actually look at what they get right. One of the things they get right is that all of us are alienated from one another. All of us feel this sense of alienation. All of us feel this sense of guilt. We all know that. We all have this sense. That's the reason the wall resonates at all, is because it does appeal to you. It does connect with something that we all actually feel. But the problem is, is that it's not just about alienation from one another or about personal feelings of guilt and shame. What the wall can't get us to is that we are ultimately alienated from one another because humanity's sin has alienated us from God. It's got the sense of alienation. It gets that down, but it misses completely the cause of our alienation. It's not just the bricks and the wall that alienate us from one another. It's ultimately that we have been separated and alienated from our Creator. And that's something that the wall just can't get us to that truth. Yeah, and as we already mentioned, that alienation, that separation, it's represented at one point by Paul in the New Testament by an actual wall. The first place that it shows up in Scripture, though, is in the form of, well, first hiding, right, hiddenness, and then covering, clothing, the fig leaves, immediately after the fall, right? A change occurs, or we see a change, that it's immediately felt by Adam and Eve, that we see humans hiding first from God and also each other. And our favorite, our resident three chords theologian, Herman Bavinck, talks about how shame or guilt It's not the result of doing something wrong, right? For example, the eating of the fruit, but but what it is, it's the result of the corruption of the good. Something happened to the image that Adam and Eve bore that we were created in, and they knew it. They felt it immediately, and they understood themselves at that moment to be guilty and impure before God. That's why they needed covering. Being exposed for who we really are is only satisfying if somebody loves us unconditionally. That's the only circumstance in which being exposed for who we are is satisfying, is if somebody loves us unconditionally. Because otherwise, all there is in being exposed is guilt and shame. And this album gives us nothing to relieve our guilt, not in any sense of the meanings of guilt. There's different meanings of guilt. There's feelings of guilt we have, sometimes true, sometimes false. Sometimes we feel false guilt and false shame over things that we couldn't control that weren't within our power. But there's also real guilt that we feel at times. Godly grief that produces repentance is the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There's real guilt that drives us to repentance. But the fact is, this guilt that all of us feel, all of us feel, the answer for that is not being exposed, nor is it just forgiving ourselves. And that's why universally what humanity tries to do is to deny it, to numb it, to try to pardon it in our own power. Those are the things that we try to do. And the only answer to our guilt, and this is what Christianity uniquely and exclusively provides, is the cross of Jesus Christ, because it answers all aspects of our guilt, because that's what we believe about the cross is that it was truly a substitutionary atonement, that we were truly guilty, and that Jesus took the punishment in our place. He carried our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He carried our sin. And if that's not true, then there is no real answer for our guilt. That's one of the things we've got to recognize. So many people today try to deny the substitutionary atonement, but that is such foolishness because it cuts the heart out of what it means to be Christian. 
There is no satisfaction for our guilt, no answer for our guilt apart from Christ truly and authentically taking our sins. But he doesn't just take our sins. That would be wonderful enough. He also became a victor over them. Christ is victor over every domain of darkness, and that includes even our false guilt, our false shame, our hatred of ourselves. And the way that he becomes the victor is that he imputes his own goodness to us. He gives us his own goodness so that we are no longer judged on the basis of what we've done, the basis of what we felt, but we are judged on the basis of the goodness of Jesus such that God the Father, when he looks at us, can never think anything less of us than he thinks of Jesus. That's how he tears down the wall of Ephesians 2, the wall of hostility that separates us from our fellow human beings is by tearing down the hostility that was between us and God and giving his own goodness to us. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast.